Well, good, um, good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's my distinct privilege to be with you again in this way. And uh, I, I always uh, count it a blessing. Uh, it's a, a double blessing for me today as I get the bat lead off for our new psalm series. So how about that? That's pretty cool stuff, right? Um, I, I will follow up Dennis's announcement on the nursery. Um, I, I can reinforce that. Having been there in that nursery ministry for several years myself at one point, um, Guys, you're okay to work there too, all right? We'll take you. And in fact, uh, the young ones uh, seem to like the male presence there um, somehow. I'm not sure exactly what is up with that, but, but they like that. And uh, it can be, yes, crying babies can be tough, um, I know, but it can also be very rewarding. Uh, I can remember crawling under the table we have in there with some of the kids and pretend it was a fort or something, you know. So... Uh, I really would encourage you to consider that that ministry is really important. It, it is, um, and I also before I get into the the meat of the material this morning, I want to say I I, I really I I, uh, I appreciated Dennis's sermon last week, especially the part where I realized I wasn't the only one to have used his brothers to break windows and wallboard. Okay, uh, I assure you, all of that breakage occurred in my BC days before Christ, so um, no no breakage since then. Um, Anyway, okay, um, before we get into it, let's, let's pray. I think, I think it's always important to pray for, over these things. So uh, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we come before you. We acknowledge that you are the sovereign of the entire universe, of, of everything, even beyond the universe, that we don't even perceive and understand. Uh, Lord, we come humbly before you today, and we just thank you uh, for being for your, for your reckless love. It's so strange to maybe think of you as being reckless in any sense, but when we consider how much your love has cost you, uh, Lord, yeah, it seems it feels a little, a little reckless, but we appreciate that, that you love us that much, that you're willing to suffer so deeply to rescue us, to go out of your way. And uh, so, so, Lord, bless us th- uh, this morning. I, I pray that... You will speak to your people in a powerful way. Uh, Lord, God forbid that I should in any way distort your message or mislead the people, even in the slightest. May your message go through me to them. Uh, Prepare us for what you have for us this morning. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so um, I wanted to start with an introduction or like an overview of the Psalms themselves as an entire book. Since we're, we're starting off, this is the first message in the series. We'll get the, specifically the Psalm 23 is going to be the main uh, section of, of, this, of the message. But uh, I just want to start out with some introductory marks so you kind of get an overview uh, of the whole thing. And uh, just some general information, uh, little factoids, if you will, about the Psalms. Uh, we get our English title, Psalms, from the Greek Septuagint. That's, a, that's a, an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the title of this book in the Septuagint is Psalmoi. Okay, as you can see, it's a, almost a direct uh, transliteration. Now, you notice in the Greek, we actually pronounce the P, Psalmoi. Uh, we've kind of dropped it in the English, so it's just Psalms. Uh, you may have also heard the title Psalter. Uh, that's another alternate way of saying the book of Psalms. is a collection of 150 poems, but they're not just poems. They're poems set to music, and it was, it was actually still is, the hymnal of the Jewish people. Um, 
The Hebrew title of the book is Book of Psalms, or Book of Praises, actually. And in fact, if you go through them all, you'll notice that almost without exception, there's some element of praise in every one of these psalms. And in fact, it's hard to imagine that it would be an effective hymnal if there wasn't a, a substantial amount of it devoted to the praise of our God, right? Uh, so um, David is the author of nearly half of them. In fact, there's uh, quite a number of them that aren't attributed to any individual, and it could be quite possible that some of those are David's as well. So he's, uh, he was the most prolific writer of all these. Um, um, there's a thing you need to understand. If you're going to understand, if you're going to come to the, to the Psalter, to the Psalms, and really uh, study it correctly, you need to understand the nature of Hebrew poetry, because that's what this is, right? Um, unlike much of Western poetry, Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme and meter. Um, it's more of a rhythm thing with a lot of parallelism in it. And the, the rhythm is achieved through tonal stress and, and putting emphasis on the important words. But I think a little bit more important for your study is this idea of parallelism. This is where the poet will kind of state the premise or the idea, the big idea, and then uh, continue to reinforce that through subsequent lines in the poem in different ways. Uh, there's a variety of different classifications of parallelism. I'm not going to get into all of, of that this morning. But just realize that as you're going through the Psalms, you're going to be seeing, look for it, right? Expect to see this parallelism. And we are going to see it, in fact, uh, in Psalm 23 this morning as we study that verse by verse. We'll see how these things are going. And then the other thing you need to just be aware of is that this is poetry, and the psalmists, like all poets, will use the various literary constructs that are available to them, simile, hyperbole. Uh, Psalm 23 is rich in metaphor, and so we're going to see a lot of that this morning. Okay, so launching in now to uh, Psalm 23, uh, I'd like to invite you to, to take your Bibles out, uh, whether you have an electronic one like me up here or uh, if, you're, if you want to use the, uh, the Bible in the seat in front of you, uh, you'll find Psalm 23 on page 458. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and Psalm 23 goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me be beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leaves me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." So just to give you an overview of Psalm 23, uh, really I think it's got to be probably the most beloved and maybe most memorized of all the Psalms. Um, it, it, it figures prominently, if you've been around for a while and you've been to some memorial services, you'll, you may have noticed that it's very prominent in memorial services for departed loved ones, just because it's just overflowing with hopefulness. Because, because even in that, God's got this. All right, that's the sense that we get from David. Um, um, 
there's, there's going to be two primary images that we see of God in Psalm 23. The first one, and probably the most uh, memorable to you, is this idea of the shepherd, and the good shepherd particularly. Uh, but also there's this sense uh, later in the psalm of, of a gracious host. And we're going to look at, at both of those as we pull uh, the, the psalm apart uh, verse by verse. Um, also, it's quite natural that David should use the imagery of a shepherd because he was once one uh, as, as a younger man. And, and so that was something that was very well known to him. By the way, uh, we also have someone in our midst who understands this quite well as well. George Kenyon Dewey, in his native Kenya, as a young man, was, had spent a while shepherding sheep as well. So if, if you want to kind of pull the thread on this imagery of the shepherd, you might want to talk to George. He could tell you all about it, I'm sure. Um, uh, and like I said, there's going to be parallelism through Psalm 23 as we see how God's provision and his protection are developed through each verse. All right, so let's jump in with Psalm uh, 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, The Lord here, all caps is the way we usually write it, refers to what is called uh, the tetragrammaton, fancy theology word, but it's basically this name of God that's translated transliterated into English as Y-H-W-H. We would pronounce it Yahweh, or alternately Jehovah, and it is the term that the Hebrews used for the eternal, self-existent God. This this name was so special and so revered to them, in fact, that that they wouldn't even pronounce it. The Orthodox Jews won't even pronounce this name. Now, that might seem a little bit kind of over the top, a little extreme, But on the other hand, let me suggest to you that maybe we would benefit from kind of pondering some of that reverence, right? Sometimes maybe we're a little too flippant coming to God, and uh, we should keep in mind that God is to be truly revered. This is the Almighty we're dealing with here, right? Okay, Um, another thing I wanted to mention is uh, uh, moving over in the verse to to the word my, Uh, I found this from uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, The sweetest word of the whole is that monosyllable my. Whatever be the believer's position, he is even now under the personal care of Jehovah. Does that not give you a great feeling that the God of the universe is watching over you individually? He is caring for you individually. Um, and so this idea of the shepherd, this shepherd is going to make it so that I do not want. That is that I, I don't lack anything of true need. It doesn't mean I won't have wants. Like, I want a Ferrari in my garage. But that's not something I truly need. Right? Um, he's going to ensure that I have everything I need. Um, Paul understood this. Paul wrote extensively about these things. He knew how to be abased, how to be content with meager means, but there was never any doubt of of the sufficiency of God's grace in his life. Um, So God will meet our needs. It might be different than we think. Okay. And in fact, our physical needs might be a much shorter list than we think. We might think we need the latest iPhone, but that's not actually necessarily on the list. Um, the fact that I even have a house that has a garage 
let alone the Ferrari, is, is a great blessing. I don't necessarily need any of that. What did Paul say to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 6, verse 8? He said, with food and clothing, we will be content. Food and clothing, two items, really short list, right? So, so my warning in this discussion is beware the creeping prosperity gospel, right? We tend to get caught up in our prosperous culture and think we need all this stuff. But that might not be God's idea of what we really need. So the good shepherd will provide for us according to to his idea, right? Um, so the image of the good shepherd, uh, this, this God as shepherd thing runs throughout the scripture. You can find it popping up in a number of places, but it, it's especially prominent in reference to Jesus where, remember, he said in John 10, uh, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he went on to say, follow that up with, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Uh, we sang about it, didn't we? How, we, how we'll leave the 99 and chase after the one who's gone astray. Um, yeah, the, the shepherd. Uh, note the paradox in all of this. Um, this God, this king of kings, the Lord of lords, has this image of him, he takes the role of a shepherd. Remember, shepherds in the day were kind of near the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, right? And here's God taking on this role of a shepherd. Spurgeon again said, what condescension is this that the infinite Lord assumes toward his people the office and character of a shepherd? Okay, um, Looking at verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. Can you almost get the image in your mind of the gently sloping hillside with the lush green pasture, a babbling brook running by? Um, and this, this idea of the makes me lie down in green pastures, I, I got this from the, uh, the ABP, is the Apostolic Bible Polyglot. Yeah, there is such a thing. Look it up. It's, it's interesting. What it is, it's a... English and Greek interlinear Bible, so it's a, like a word-by-word -word translation, and it, it's of the entire Bible because they start with the uh, Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, so it's the Greek and English throughout the whole Bible. Anyway, it says it this way. I, I just thought I'd throw it in because it, it really thought it was kind of interesting imagery. In the place of tender shoots, there he encamped me. So, so think of it, the, the absolute best grass to be grazing on, if you happen to be a sheep. These tender shoots, right, the, they're so tasty, right? And then, and then he, he finds this place, this path, he says, yeah, this is the place. We're gonna, we're gonna set up shop here for a while. We're not just passing through, this is the place for my sheep to be. And then the still waters. Uh, the ESV notes that this could also be rendered waters of rest. A little bit of different, different view of it. So, so we're getting this refreshing water, not from a, from a pond, like a truly still water, where it might be stagnant even, but from a fresh water, water of rest. Okay. Um, also, uh, in verse 3 now, we see, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, this idea of restoring my soul, uh, to, it, it actually talks in terms of 
giving my breath back to me, the very essence of my life, revitalizing, reinvigorating, giving me a new vitality, um, even as the cool, clear water of the previous verse was discussing, even like I have here, as my mouth gets a little dry. Speaking to you this way, I can take some water and it's refreshing. Um, I uh, remember the days of uh, summer camp for football uh, in August, and even in, up in Pennsylvania, 95 degrees and 95% humidity, and we would have three-a-day practices. I am telling you, nothing like some cool water at the end of all of that to revitalize, right? Um, also, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Uh, could also be the right paths. Uh, either way, I, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily matters a lot. What, the, what we really want to understand is that the good shepherd provides moral direction for us. He leads us in the right way. He leads us in the narrow way. In fact, the good shepherd is the way. What do you say in John 14, 6? If you haven't memorized John 14, 6 yet, I suggest that you do. It's really a great verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Powerful, powerful stuff. But he leads us in this narrow way, and he told us in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, if you want to look it up, uh, this way, this narrow way, is often difficult. Right? It's not the easy way. But it's the way, it's the only way that leads us safely home. Okay? In contrast... You may remember Elton John back in the day singing about how the boulevard is not that bad. And you know, honestly, if, uh, it, at times it's, it's not that bad. At least right up until the point when you go careening off into the abyss because there's no bridge to the other side. Right? Uh, in this whole idea of, of his guidance, uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary said this, he restores me when I wander. No creature will lose itself sooner than a sheep. So apt is it to go astray, and then so unapt to find the way back. The best saints are sensible of their proneness to go astray like lost sheep. Psalm 119, 176. They miss their way and turn aside into bypaths. But when God shows them their error, gives them repentance and brings them back to their duty again, he restores the soul. And if he did not do so, they would wander endlessly and be undone. Good stuff, I think. Um, and, and Isaiah talks about this idea of the sheep going astray as well. Uh, Isaiah may, of all the prophets, have given the clearest image of a suffering Messiah. Uh, the, the essence of the gospel is maybe more clearly seen in Isaiah than anywhere else. And he said uh, in chapter 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. So God is leading us. God is guiding us in the narrow way. And God will see us home. He stakes his reputation on it for his namesake, his very honor is counting on the fact that he can successfully get us to the promised land, right? To the other side. And so uh, this is the nature of our God and the determination that he has 
to convey us safely, to convoy us, if you will, to the promised land, his promised heaven. Uh, now we come to, a, uh, I think, what might be among the more powerful and interesting verses in, in that entire psalm, maybe in all of the Psalter. Uh, this is the one where you will draw your comfort, your deepest comfort from, especially in, in those uh, memorial type situations. It says here, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, this idea of uh, shadow of death, the ESV notes that it can also be rendered deep darkness. Um, so uh, that there's some debate whether it really is talking specifically death or uh, some other sense of a, of a dark shadow. Um, I will say that the Septuagint uses the word thanatu, which does mean death, and uh, most of the uh, versions that I reference, the ones that we rely on, King James, New American Standard, uh, English Standard, Revised Standard, all have uh, death here. It all, it all talks to death. But either way, all right, whether you're facing death specifically or some other dark pall hanging over you, the comfort in verse 4 applies. It's the same comfort that we are to get. Uh, now, when we talk about the valley, um, we might, especially us East Coasters, where we have kind of more gentle, sloping hills and lush green valleys, all that kind of stuff, that might be the image. That's not exactly what we're talking about here. This, this is more uh, something like perhaps this. This is the, called the Sikh, and it's in the ancient city of Petra over in modern-day Jordan. And this is a, it's a very narrow, steeply-sided gorge, really, a, a crevasse or something like that, more like. And you can imagine that there's not a whole lot of light getting down to the bottom of that uh, gorge, except for maybe very short periods of the day. Uh, so, so this is a, a kind of a dark place. Now, uh, the observant uh, students out there might notice, you've seen this place before. Where have I seen this before? If you were aficionado of the Indiana Jones movie, uh, this was in The Last Crusade. This is one of the places in The Last Crusade. Anyway, um, uh, what we see in, in this verse 4 is David gets very real with us, right? He talked about the pleasant pastures, and there will be those. But then there's also the, the times of, of deep darkness, right? And, and this deep darkness can come in different forms. Um, depression is one of them. Uh, I've, I've known people, I've, I've engaged with people that have battled anxious depression. It's, uh, it's dreadful. It's truly dreadful. Uh, it, and if you've been there, you know it. Uh, it it's, it's really... Uh, really tough. Uh, it could be in the form of guilt, shame, regret. Uh, Rachel Arguelles uh, last week gave her testimony, right, about how she had been trapped in this darkness, this guilt and shame. She was chasing her idol of the good girl image, and it just, it wasn't working. She just felt so much guilt about all of that. Uh, Rachel, thank you for being wherever you are. Thank you for being uh, so transparent with us and open. That, that was, uh, that was beautiful. That was a blessing. Or it may be, in fact, death's dark shadow. Um, some of you know, probably most of you, I guess, that uh, the last couple of years have been some pretty, pretty tough times for my, me and my family. Uh, May in particular is a bad month. 
Uh, we just recently remembered uh, the, the home going of my eldest son two years ago. Um, and and I, I bring it up again more to say just this to you, that uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not a trained counselor by any means, but I've been through darkness. I know darkness. And so if you're in a dark time, uh, I, I offer for you, come to me, let's talk, I'll listen. I can give you at least an empathetic ear. I can't necessarily say I know what you're dealing with, but I know what it is to deal with dark times. So, so come to me if you want, and, uh, and we'll talk. I'll listen. Well, I'll listen, you talk, and we'll engage that way. Okay. Um, okay. Um, in the dark times... Even in the face of death, we, not, we, fee, near, we need not fear any evil or any actual harm. It, I'm not saying it won't hurt. Okay, that's different. I'm saying there's no long-term harm that God is going to allow to come that he is not prepared to entirely redeem. He's, any of that hurt, any of that suffering is going to be redeemed by him. Uh, so much so that Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Death is but a form, is, is but a shadow. It talks about the shadow of death. It is merely a shadow when you really, really kind of contemplate these things. Because of Christ and his atoning death, we need not fear death anymore. Do you remember what Jesus said to Martha in John 11? He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The death, the physical death, is not the end of the story. And recall when Jesus was hanging on the cross and the one, one thief cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say to him? Today, Today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Now know that nobody escaped the Roman cross. Cross. When you were on that cross, you're dying. You're a dead man already. It's just a matter of time and how much agony you're going to endure. So those people were dying there. But again, the physical death was not the end of the story. Today, you'll be with me in paradise, he said. And then Paul, coming back to Paul again, Philippians 1, verse 21, he said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Right, right. It's actually like a good thing. Blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's a promotion to glory, to this eternal state. So we need not fear any of this, right? Because... Oh, wait, hold on. I'm not ready for you yet. It's the good shepherd that goes with us. What did he tell us in Matthew 28 when he gave us the, the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all the world, um, you know, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, he said. Right. So he's walking through. He's been in that valley. You remember when I was with you uh, doing James uh, chapter 1? A few months ago, I, I suggested to you that nobody has gone through a deeper 
darker valley than Jesus when he bore our sin load on the cross. Nobody. Nobody suffered like him. So he knows. He knows the, the darkness you're in. He knows when he's walking you through um, what you're going through. And he understands and appreciates what is needed at the time. Now, an interesting thing, let's, let's be honest, I'll, I'll be frankly honest with you, that uh, his presence is not always palpable. It, it's not always a, a visceral, something that you actually feel. In fact, sometimes in the deepest darkness, it seems like God is the furthest away. It's like, you know, where is God in all of this? But he's, he's there. And often it's more uh, uh, apparent after the fact when you look back and think, wow, like, how was it even possible for me to get through that? How did I have the strength to do this or that or the other thing? Um, two days ago was very much a lot of that for me. And, and, and a peace that passes understanding sometimes. In the, in the moment when my son passed into glory, for all the stress that had been going on for all that time, it would continue to go on after that, but for, in that moment, there was a strange peace that I can't explain other, other than the presence of the Good Shepherd. And so if God is for us, who's going to be against us? That was homework from last sermon. If you didn't do your homework, go to Romans 8 this week and spend some time in it. You'll be blessed. You'll be really glad you did. Okay, trust me in that. But this idea of not knowing God's presence, even though he's really close, uh, I'll give you an illustration I got from a thought that I got from Dr. McMurtry several years ago. This is really interesting to me. Uh, I hope... I'm not going to kind of bore you or eyes glass over. What, what he was saying was that you know, we live in our three-dimensional physical world. If you take Einstein's relativity into account, so you can throw time in as a fourth dimension, whatever. The idea, though, that he was saying is that God might exist in a hyper-dimensional existence somehow. So he's, mathematically, there's the potential of an infinite number of dimensions, and maybe our infinite God dwells in an infinite dimensionality. I don't know. But let's go the other way for a second, and imagine that there's this, uh, this existence in a two-dimensional world, that there's, there's a bunch of creatures going about their lives, doing their thing in, a, in the plane of this paper, Right? And they're not even aware. They have no way of even perceiving that all of this other stuff is outside of their little part of the universe. Their, their universe is part of a grander universe, and they have no way to know it. And in fact, I could love these creatures, and I could hold them this close to my heart, and they still don't know that I'm even here because I'm not in their little plane. They don't have any way to know that I'm out here like this. So they don't feel it, even though I'm caring for them. Um, just an idea. Maybe that helps you. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, we draw comfort from the metaphorical rod and staff of the shepherd. The rod is what we would probably call more something like a club, right? It was a, it was a defensive weapon to, it, to protect the sheep. And then he would have the shepherd's staff, the shepherd's hook, uh, mostly we use them today to hang flowers and bird feeders on, right? But in the day, it was something that, that used to guide the sheep. 
right? To, to, so protection with the club, guidance with the staff. Um, we, I think of it as our, our good shepherd is our armed escort through the dark valleys of life. Okay. Um, in verse 5 now, we transition to the metaphor of God as the gracious host. And we read, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Um, so we see that David's talking about even with his enemies all around. And go back and read about it. David had lots of enemies. Goliath and the Philistines. Uh, King Saul, his own son, Absalom, tries to depose him. He had enemies all around. But he says, with, in the presence of my enemies, God prepares a feast for me, a table, a meal. He provides for me. Um, and, and, and so we have this idea of um, preparation. The, the preparing actually was interesting, has some connotation, of, of some military connotation to it, I was discovering. So maybe with enemies around, uh, David's alluding to the fact that he's preparing possibly to even do battle. I don't know. That was just an interesting uh, tidbit. Um, okay, uh, let's look forward. Uh, the anointing oil, that was, that was like a symbol of sanctification, that you belong here, you're one of mine, right? So, so God's putting Satan and his minions on notice. Hey, this one... This one is mine. Now, Satan still has some leeway, right? As, even as we read about Job. Lots of stuff going on with Job, but God still said, you can go this far and no further. And there's no debate, really. <laughs> Satan has no debate in any of this. God establishes the boundaries. He establishes the parameters. We are his and nothing befalls us that he doesn't already approve of and understand and know how he's going to redeem. Okay? And so we're anointed into his service. We are anointed as believer priests into his service. Spurgeon said, it, it's an anointing of grace from on high for each one of his believer priests. And then my cup runs over, it overflows. My, the cup is a, like an image of my lot in life. And what is my lot in life? It's abundant life in Christ. That's what he said in John 10.10. 10. I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. And you might remember that Jesus used this idea of the cup, this imagery, for his lot when he was in the garden praying. You remember? He said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, your will, not mine. Okay, coming down the home stretch, we got verse 6. This is the last of the verses. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, interestingly, uh, ESV notes that the term surely could actually mean only. If we read it that way, it's a little bit of a different twist. Only goodness and mercy shall follow me. It's, it's at least the good idea that Bad stuff won't be following me all the days of my life, but the goodness and mercy are the things that are following me. And the idea of um, follow... Well, okay, before I get to follow, let me talk about mercy first. 
I think this is an important uh, thing as well. Mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. That may mean nothing to you, but it's an important word because it really means uh, something, I think, a little bit grander in scope than mercy, although mercy is part of it. It's this idea of steadfast love that the ESV notes it could be uh, rendered as, and, and the New American Standard calls it loving kindness, an interesting term. But I, I think it gets to the idea of this, this overarching, enduring love of God from which his mercy exudes, right? His mercy comes out of this love. The, the love is the source of the mercy. Okay. All right, so now to this idea of follow. Um, follow is, has the sense of, of to pursue, to chase aggressively after. So God's goodness and his mercy, his steadfast love, chase after me. They stick to me like my own shadow. I couldn't outrun his goodness and love if I wanted to. Okay, and then we go further into the verse. We see this idea of I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, ESV knows that shall dwell could also be uh, rendered shall return to dwell, which is kind of a little interesting thing. And if we couple that with the idea that the, that the words we get forever, that the word translated here forever, actually mean uh, literally something more along the lines of uh, length of days. So some have suggested that what he's really saying here is that all the days of my life I shall continue to return to your house, which in his day was the tabernacle. Now, that, that said, uh, almost all of those translations I mentioned before have this sense of, of the more eternal view. Right, the forever. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't really know. We do know that Jesus said he, he's going to prepare a place for us in heaven, right? In my Father's house, John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms, however you like to think of it. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you can also be. Um, and then this idea of in Revelation 7, 17, really kind of reflects Psalm 23. Let me read it for you. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, which would be Jesus, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right? So what I'm thinking, maybe uh, in the poetic sense, it's a little of both. Right? Maybe David was addressing uh, an immediate temporal aspect of his life that he was, would return frequently, routinely, continually to the tabernacle, to the house of God for his entire life. But metaphorically extending that to the grander, broader, eternal view. I think it's some of both, perhaps. Um, anyway, uh, some concluding thoughts as uh, the clock ticks rapidly. Um, just to summarize, uh, the first few bullets are, are by way of summary. David expresses his hope. He's trusting in uh, his God to provide, to guide, to protect. And he uses the parallelism, the metaphors throughout the psalm. He knows that God will be with him through the ups and downs. 
and that he will be with God forever. Uh, Remember that steadfast love thing? Uh, That was in the sense of belonging together. We belong with God. God belongs with us. He wants that relationship forever. Uh, He knows, David knows that God loves him with a steadfast love. Um, This same hope I want to extend to you is available. It's available to you. If you'll place your trust in Christ as well. This is the gospel. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, be sure to come talk to me afterward and I'll explain it. Or talk to any of the ones, the elders and people that are up here to pray. Or talk to your neighbor. Almost anybody will be able to give you the essence of the gospel if you're not sure that you understand what that means. And for the rest of you, I want to, I want to encourage you. Every aspect of your life, every aspect, there may be some things that seem like just pure drudgery or pointless suffering you don't understand. Trust me, every part of your life, trust God. Every part of your life is part of his plan. It's part of the spiritual war. It's part of your mission. Okay, uh, with that, I, I would like to call uh, Jill Short forward to help us with uh, uh, just to kind of some music to help us kind of process some of this to, to, uh, to think, meditate on it a little bit more. I'm going to close in prayer, though, and, uh, and then I'll, we'll let sh- uh, Jill do her thing. Our great God, we thank you once again for this day and for loving us with your steadfast love. Uh, Lord, we know we can trust you because you have demonstrated that love on the cross. We talked about it earlier. You demonstrated your love for us even while we are still your enemies. Oh God, we bless you. Please bless us. Lord, finish this uh, message, your message to us in our hearts as we go from here today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.